0: A warning to our listeners. Today's episode is about intimate partner violence. It will include descriptions of physical and emotional acts of abuse that could be upsetting. And I suggest that if those are things you don't want to hear, you skip this one.
1: The gun was introduced into my marriage. And the moment that he put it to my head, my whole life changed. When he got angry, he would hold the loaded guns to my head.
0: You just heard Renee Norris Jones and Leslie Morgensteiner describe how romantic partners used guns against them and the impact it had on their lives. Their stories are far too common, but rarely told. Turn on the local news, and you're bound to see gruesome scenes of women and men killed by their romantic partners, most commonly with the use of a gun. Focused in the gruesome and sensational, news crews pick up the scent of blood. And we should continue to see and be horrified and saddened by every single one of these tragedies but we can not pretend that this is where the story ends. On this episode of Bending the Ark, the secret life of guns in romantic relationships. How guns that are never fired nevertheless manipulate, intimidate, and strike in their targets, the fear of being the next story on the news. We'll talk with experts about what we know, what's left to learn, and how an email or phone call to your senators and representatives today, that's right, today, can make a difference for years to come. Welcome to Bending the Arc, the podcast from the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice. I'm your host, Dan Traglia. On today's show, the violence that doesn't make the news and isn't mentioned at the March for Our Lives, the non-fatal use of guns in romantic relationships. And we're going to finish the episode by talking about how the major legislation that protects victims against abusers, the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, is about to expire and what you can do to save it. So if you're pressed for time and you want to know how you can reach your senator or congressman and what you should tell them, skip to about five minutes left in the show. Otherwise, stay with me, and you'll learn an incredible amount about the extent of independent partner violence and the subtle ways that abusers control, manipulate, and inspire fear in their victims in ways that leave no physical signs but emotional and mental scars for the rest of their lives. Today, we'll be joined by our stellar podcast fellow, Emily Berkowitz, a Penn Master student with extensive experience working with victims of relationship violence. But before we go much further, let's lay out some of the basic facts on what exactly we mean by intimate partner violence and just how widespread it is. Intimate partner violence, or IPV, can include physical and sexual violence, stalking, and psychological aggression that harms someone or exerts control over them. One in four women and one in seven men have been the victim of severe physical violence by an intimate partner, let alone the other forms of intimate partner violence, and we're lacking research on the extent of IPV in the LGBTQ community. For the purpose of this episode, we're going to focus on women who have been abused by their male partners, in part because this is where most of the research has focused, and also because women are much more likely to be killed by their partners than men. The stats on this are truly disturbing. A 2017 report from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that over half of women who were murdered from 2003 to 2014 were killed by a current or former romantic partner, and more than half of those involved a gun. And the presence of the gun is a big factor here. Abused women were five times more likely to be killed if their partner had access to a gun. And let me also state, before we isolate a big chunk of potential listeners in the U.S. population here, That this isn't to demonize gun owners or demonize guns generally, but the stats tell us that we can't really understand the life-threatening dangers faced by abuse victims without thinking about the role that guns play in that abuse. Okay, Emily, we just laid some of the groundwork for this episode, but I think there are some important terms to define and misconceptions to clear up before we really dive in.
2: Definitely. The term domestic violence can refer to a variety of relationships— children and parents, adults with elderly parents, siblings. Intimate partner, however, is specific to a romantic or intimate relationship. Married couples, people living together, dating, have a child in common, or even hooking up, and that's who we're talking about today. When we talk about a relationship that is violent or abusive, we're not just talking about battering and physical violence that results in things like black eyes, bruises, and broken bones. As a society, we often focus on visual, visceral injuries. Take the HBO show Big Little Lies about the lives of a group of wealthy women in Monterey, California. It's arguably one of the most accurate depictions of the cycle of abuse, but it also leans on graphic images of rape, black eyes, and beating to drive its point. Which is not to say that's inaccurate or wrong, but rather to illustrate the point that we are pulled to empathize more with physical danger and the threat of homicide than psychological fear.
0: One of the questions I hear most often is, how does someone end up in that situation? Why don't they just leave? You mentioned Big Little Lies a second ago, and I think one of the other pieces missing from depictions of IPV in both fictional and news accounts is a critical concept called the cycle of abuse. Tell us what that means.
2: Well, think about it this way. If you went out on a first date with someone and they threaten or hit you, would you go on a second date? Probably not. Abuse doesn't start right away. It slowly builds over time until a victim becomes trapped for any number of reasons. Like they don't have the financial resources. They've been isolated from friends, family, and loved ones. They fear social or institutional blame and shame if they seek help. They're concerned about their children. They wonder, will their partner try to get custody? Will they harm the children? Perhaps the partner has also threatened to harm the victim, himself, or someone she cares about, like a pet. When an abusive partner has access to a gun, that threat becomes even more realistic. Abuse usually follows a behavior pattern known as the cycle of abuse, and it has three distinct phases, the honeymoon phase, the tension-building phase, and then the incident. To put it simply, during the honeymoon stage, the relationship is good and happy. Then tension starts to build slowly and ends in a violent incident. And again, this violent incident does not need to include a visible injury. An abusive partner will then often apologize or make promises that it won't happen again, which then restarts that honeymoon phase. The hope for change can make it very difficult to leave. It's very confusing and painful to be hurt by someone who says, I love you.
0: This sounds very familiar to what we heard in our episode about human trafficking with Blanca where a trafficking victim is often wooed by the appearance of love before discovering that they have fallen in love with a pimp who has isolated them from friends, family, and social institutions like schools, and now they're being forced to strip or have sex for money. In that case, the goal is money and power, whereas in IPV, it's power and control over one's intimate partner. So we wanted to go deep, not just into intimate partner violence, but the role of firearms in those relationships. Emily, you talked to Dr. Susan Sorensen, professor here at SB2 and executive director of the Ortner Center on Violence and Abuse in Relationships. She studies firearms, intimate partner violence, violence against women, and child abuse. Now, these are fields that are so often studied separately, each falling into what we in the policy world refer to as its own silo. But Susan has dedicated her career to the overlaps.
2: Yeah, and like many people, Dr. Sorensen began her career seeing gun violence and abuse in relationships as distinct issues. But about fifteen years ago, she began to identify those connections that you mentioned in the beginning of the episode.
1: Um, I had been doing research on uh, intimate partner violence, violence against women, child abuse, um, as well as research on firearms for quite a few years, and. I, like a lot of people, tended to think of these as distinct and separate issues. And it wasn't really an aha moment, but it went, kind of, wait a minute, there is overlap here. And that point, it was maybe, oh, you know, 15 years or so ago, mm-hmm. it wasn't really an area of interest uh, to many researchers. So it was bringing together the edges of two fields at that point in time.
2: What makes Dr. Sorensen's research so unique and critical is that she is focused on issues of non-fatal gun use. Most of the field that studies firearms and IPV focuses on mortality and women's deaths. It's
1: easier for researchers to study the deaths because literally there is a body there. Uh, It's easy to count. It's much more challenging to get information about the non-fatal uses of gun, particularly those that don't involve some sort of injury where somebody ends up seeking medical care. But the work I've been doing most recently has focused not so much on women's deaths as focused on their lives and how guns factor in to women's lives.
0: In particular, the field is missing how guns impact behaviors that are often referred to as coercive control, a term developed by Dr. Evan Stark of Rutgers University. And that topic has been the focus of much of Dr. Sorensen's recent work. Coercive control describes how domination, degradation, and surveillance are used throughout the cycle of abuse to entrap women. It doesn't focus on episodes of injury. It focuses on the persistent fear women experience in abusive relationships and how it degrades their dignity and sense of self.
1: Using coercive control creates an environment in which there is fear, an intense fear, particularly when a gun is used, because there's a threat, and there's a realistic appraisal that that threat could lead to one's death.
0: Listen to this story from Dr. Stark, who's reading a police report of a woman named Dila, who shot and killed her abusive husband. Dila turned herself in immediately after shooting him, and Dr. Stark was shocked by what she told the police on her way to the station.
3: Dila takes the gun that he's had under the pillow, shoots him four times at point-blank range in the head, then goes downstairs, calls the police. And this is what the police officer wrote about Dila when she got to the station. She stated that he had always demanded from her an exact outline of how she spent her day. She would have to prepare a summary of meals planned for the month for his approval. She said, quote, he was never happy with macaroni or steak or potatoes, but instead demanded meals such as veal marsala. Nothing she did would ever please him, she said. Nothing was ever good enough to meet his demands.
2: The veal marsala was an instrument of control. It wasn't that this man loved fancy Italian cuisine, but it was a way of making Dila feel inadequate, that nothing she did was right or would ever be enough. And over time, she began to believe that she lost control not only of her daily life, but her own self-worth. What Dr. Sorensen's research shows is that the mere presence of a gun in an IPV situation can also contribute to or create these same dynamics of control. And a gun doesn't need to be displayed frequently to create a climate of fear. Just knowing a gun is there makes a victim more likely to accommodate their partner rather than challenge. It makes them more cautious. Imagine a situation where a woman confronts her partner for reading her text without her permission. And as she demands an explanation, her partner simply pulls out his gun and begins to clean it. So often, the conversation ends as soon as the gun comes out. It never has to be aimed, it never has to be fired, because she recognizes the imminent lethal threat and is likely to back down.
1: When a partner brings out a gun in that circumstance, the woman backs down. You can get a woman to do what you want without having to touch her. A gun used in an intimate partner's violence setting is very similar to how a gun would be used against any of us or how we might react. If someone approached us in a street, pulled out a gun and said, you know, give me your wallet, give me your purse, our reaction is, whoa, we put our hands up and back down and say, okay, it's, okay here, let me give it to you, let me give it to you. Um, that's the typical response. Whereas if somebody uh, comes up with a balled up fist and said, you know, give me your wallet or your purse, we might try to run away. We might try to escape that circumstance. We might resist in some way. That's what might happen in a holdup in the street, and that's my sense of what happens in the home as well.
0: So IPV advocates hear this question, why doesn't she leave all the time? But the data clearly show that women are at highest risk for being murdered by an intimate partner as they're trying to leave.
2: Exactly. IPV advocates suggest we ask instead, how does an abusive partner prevent them from leaving? This takes the responsibility and blame off of the victim and recognizes that though she may want to leave, there are many barriers to exiting relationships.
1: Research has shown the highest risk time of being murdered by an intimate partner is when a person is trying to end the relationship. When they're doing exactly what society tells them to do, they are increasing their risk for being killed.
2: If IPV is all about gaining power and control over another person, leaving or breaking up in a relationship is the most significant loss of power and control. So we come back to Dr. Sorensen's urgent point that we need to care about women before they have broken the cycle of abuse.
1: Guns matter in women's lives as well as their deaths.
0: So now let's make the transition to what are we doing to help victims of abuse, prevent abuse, and prosecute abusers.
2: The most comprehensive policy for the protection of victims of intimate partner violence is the Violence Against Women Act, or VAWA, which was part of the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994. It was the first bill to recognize domestic violence as criminal activity, and it provided funding to train officers, judges, and others on how to respond to what is referred to in the law as domestic violence and what we've been calling IPV. VAWA also barred people convicted of a domestic violence felony or who were subject to a protective order from possessing, owning or purchasing a gun. In 1996, the Lautenberg amendment expanded these protections to include misdemeanor offenses as well. Then Senator Joe Biden drafted, introduced and advocated
3: strongly for VAWA. It's the single most significant and direct way to measure the character of a nation. When violence against women is no longer societally accepted, no longer kept secret, when everyone understands that even one case is too many, that's when it will change. In
2: 1996, the Lautenberg Amendment expanded these protections to include misdemeanor offenses as well. But federal law still has a loophole you could drive a truck through.
1: Current law requires that the couple either currently or formally have been married, currently or formally have lived together, Or have a child in common. So somebody has to meet one of those three criteria. So if you have a dating partner who threatens you with a gun, it doesn't fall under the jurisdiction of federal law.
0: I think it's astounding that not only were these loopholes kind of written into the original legislation, but that they still exist. We still haven't fixed them.
2: Right? And in Ohio, protective orders, which are also known as restraining orders, were only made available to boyfriends or girlfriends this past April. Georgia still hasn't expanded that protection. And more broadly, like Dr. Sorensen was talking about, there are 23 states who have passed legislation to expand the definition of intimate partner to include dating partners in order to close that loop. But progress is slow. For example, California just passed their bill in August and there are 27 states still to go.
0: So what role do law enforcement play here? I think Susan said that IPV is widely believed to be the single most common type of call that law enforcement responds to. And they're probably the most dangerous, right? They're the first person to see both the victim and the abuser after a call is received. So, what is their role here kind of particularly as we think about the use of guns in intimate partner violence
2: so in pennsylvania along with 12 other states police officers are required to remove firearms at the scene of a domestic violence incident there are five additional states who authorize police officers to remove the guns but they don't require it this is a step in the right direction but the problem is is that if the gun isn't used in a way that causes visible injury it will likely remain in the possession of someone acting abusively See, police officers and first responders aren't routinely trained to ask if a gun was involved in the incident. That's what we need to change.
1: First responders would be wise to ask about gun use when they encounter a woman who has been abused because she might not mention it. She might not be aware of how much. The gun has affected her, but it's a way for the first responders to better understand what's going on, as well as what the actual risks of the violence escalating to be a homicide might be.
0: So we've got maybe billions of people listening to this. It's on the Internet, so who knows? Um, So there's power in numbers here. What can we, what can our audience do to help here?
2: Well, to our local listeners, you can support policy change at the local level. Like here in Philadelphia, police officers are already receiving training on responding to domestic violence calls appropriately. But in that training, they aren't learning to routinely ask if a gun was used during the incident. Check out the initiatives through local IPV resources like Women Against Abuse, Lutheran Settlement House, Women in Transition, and Congresso to find out how you can support that shift. National, state, and local coalitions across the U.S. are also frequently sharing information about how to contact your representatives and what policies can help better support victims of IPV. October is coming up. It's Domestic Violence Awareness Month, so there will be a lot of action steps shared in these coming weeks. Get on the newsletter. Sign up.
0: You just mentioned Avala, and we talked about this at the beginning of the episode, that Avala is about to expire and therefore at risk of losing funding for its 25 grant programs to prevent abuse, help victims, and aid law enforcement. It was set to expire on September 30th, but that was extended until December 7th as part of the continuing resolution that kept the government running until after the midterms. Now, the government does fund some programs that are unauthorized, but reauthorizing legislation is the only way to make sure that these grants are A, funded, and B, and almost as importantly, that Congress makes necessary improvements to the programs. Democratic Representative Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas introduced reauthorizing legislation in July, and that's been sitting in committee. To me, it's shocking and abhorrent that we're this close to the deadline, in fact, past the first deadline, and this crucial funding for 25 pretty uncontroversial programs is sitting in limbo. So the question for you, Emily, is what can we do about it?
2: Yeah, it's shocking. And not only does the VAWA reauthorization continue to uphold these protections, but the bill also expands them. Specifically, it expands the federal definition of intimate partner to include people who are dating. So this one change ensures the safety of victims across the country rather than just on a state-by-state basis. The bill also includes a nod to restorative justice, which promotes new ways of combating IPV without relying on law enforcement because not all victims of domestic violence feel safe calling 911, especially those who are undocumented or black. And so the VAWA reauthorization will offer funding to identify alternative routes towards safety. So to take action right now, head to four, that's the number four, VAWA, V-A-W-A.org. Again, that's for VAWA.org, where you'll find tons of resources on how to contact your representative and what to say. You can download a toolkit to educate your policymakers about the importance of the reauthorization. You can read the letter of support for VAWA. You can also learn about Uh, how to write an op-ed or a letter to the editor about the importance of passing this legislation. There's even a section entirely about firearms and domestic violence and how this new reauthorization can create change.
0: We'll include these details in the show notes. You don't have to remember them, although I know you're listening to this on your phone or on your computer. We don't go out over the airwaves. So go to the website right now and you can make a difference this very second and be on the lookout for more resources in October. As Emily mentioned, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and so expect more resources from the National Task Force, from the National Organization for Women, from advocacy organizations and other organizations whose primary mission is to protect victims of intimate partner violence. And so we've been talking kind of on this big, this macro level about how we can influence policy and effect change on a large scale. but. What about on the small scale? What do we do if there's someone that we think is in an abusive relationship?
2: The first thing I want to say is that if any of our listeners out there um, think that they might be in an IPV situation and are seeking help, I want to remind you that this isn't your fault and that there, is, there are so many people out there who care about you and who want to listen and who want to help. For more information about getting domestic violence resources here in Philadelphia, call the Domestic Violence Hotline. That's 1-866-723-3014. And for any of our listeners who are outside of Philadelphia, there's the National Domestic Violence Hotline. You can head to thehotline.org to chat online in a safe and secure way, or you can call 1-800-799-7233. If you are a friend, if you're concerned about a loved one, I encourage you to be there for them and to listen. On average, it can take someone three to seven times to try to leave a relationship before it ends for good. And I know that can be painful and that can be really difficult to watch, but isolation is one of the largest pieces of an intimate partner violence relationship and being there and checking in and just saying, hey, I care about you and I'm here to listen, can make all the difference in the world.
0: Thank you, Emily, and I really want to emphasize the availability of these resources. Both if you want to make a difference on a large scale, you want to make a difference for someone that you think is in need, or if you yourself need help, please use these resources. That's all for this episode of Bending the Arc. Go to our website www.sp2. That's the number two. U p dot slash Bending the Arc for more information about intimate partner violence the resources we mentioned, and learn how you can get involved. And you can subscribe and find back episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Send us an email with your thoughts on this episode or a topic you'd like to see covered at bendingthearc at sp2, again that's the number 2, .upenn.edu. This episode was produced by myself, Emily Berkowitz, Blanca Castro, and Alana Peck. And thank you to Susan Sorensen for helping us navigate this complex and really difficult topic. We'll be back with a new episode in October. Bye bye for now.